In Xinjiang province, technology's ability to track your every move isn't just something that leads to frighteningly specific Amazon ads. It can take away your freedom altogether. High-tech surveillance has enabled the Chinese government to create an unprecedented police state that few outsiders can describe. Fortunately, our guest tonight is one of those few. Good evening and welcome to the final program in our Focus on China series. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight features Jeffrey Kane, award-winning foreign correspondent and author of The Perfect Police State, which provides a rare look into the technological innovations that have enabled China's surveillance state. Jeffrey is joined in conversation by Lee Bratcher, assistant professor at Dallas Baptist University and president of the Texas Blockchain Council. You can purchase your copies of The Perfect Police State, an undercover odyssey into China's terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from the Interabang Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember that discount code is good for any of the books in your shopping cart, not just Jeffrey's. The council is incredibly grateful for all of its supporters. I'd like to especially thank Maisie Hyken for her generous sponsorship of the Focus on China series. Maisie is a member of the council's board of directors and her dedication to our mission and programming is greatly appreciated. We hope all of you have enjoyed the series, and if you've missed any of its programs, please head over to our YouTube channel at DFW World to catch up. The Council will continue to offer top-tier virtual programming through summer and into the fall, so check, continue to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. Our guest tonight is award-winning journalist, author, and technologist Jeffrey Kane. Jeffrey was formerly a correspondent at The Economist and is a regular commentator in The Wall Street Journal and uh, The Foreign Policy, among others. He's also a contributing editor at The Mekong Review and frequent guest on CNN, MSNBC, BBC, and Bloomberg. Jeffrey earned his master's degree in London as a Fulbright scholar and is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and also a security fellow at the Truman National Security Project. Jeffrey focuses on the many ways technology impacts our lives, communities, business, and his work has taken him to some of the most distant and authoritarian places on earth. Joining us to moderate this conversation is Lee Bratcher. Lee is executive director for the Institute of Global Engagement at Dallas Baptist University. A captain in the U.S. Army Reserves, Lee instructs ROTC cadets at DBW, uh, DBU rather, and UT Dallas. He received a blockchain instructor certification from IMB and serves as founder and president of the Texas Blockchain Council. Lee has thoroughly researched the applications of blockchain to to the social sciences, showcasing the technology's growing relevance in public policy. I know we are in for a fascinating conversation between these two. Thanks once again for joining us and take it away, Lee. 
Thanks, Liz, and welcome to all of our guests to this very special evening, uh, a conversation with Jeffrey Kane, the author of The Perfect Police State. Um, I know you guys will be picking up your copies at Interabank Books. Uh, and, and a thank you to the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth for inviting uh, Jeffrey to, to be on this um, call with you guys and for inviting me to moderate. I'm looking forward to the conversation, uh, deeply intrigued by the subject matter of the book. And um, I can tell you, I was able to receive an advanced copy of the book and, and read through it. It is um, an incredible, uh, almost frightening uh, experience to read it. And I, uh, it's, it's one of those nonfiction investigative journalist pieces that you can't put down. And that's kind of rare for that genre. So uh, I encourage everyone to, um, if you haven't read it, to, to read it. Uh, without further ado, uh, I first want to just open up uh, with a question for Jeffrey about the book. Um, one of the reviews that, that I read summarized the book well when the reviewer uh, asked, or, or stated rather, the book is a prescient, alarming work on the overreach of technology and state power. So Jeffrey, before we dive into the specifics and the details of your work, I'm curious your perspective, is that an accurate summation of the book? And from a, a broad 30,000 foot level, uh, how would you describe this work? Yes, so thank you, Lee. It's great to be here and thank you to the council for hosting me tonight. I think this is gonna be a really interesting talk. Um, so yes, uh, I completely agree with the summary that, that you just gave quoting that particular review. Um, I, so I come from a background as a technology journalist. Um, I had been covering uh, you know, globally and also a bit in Silicon Valley to covering um, some of the new technological advances that were being put out and in particular looking at how authoritarian regimes were using some of these technologies. Now, you know, I, I had started doing this in, in 2008, um, you know, so it's been about 13 years and I had covered a lot of, you know, far off kind of just authoritarian regimes that were um, heavy handed that people thought were going to open up eventually, but that didn't, um, you know, North mm -hmm. Korea is a good example. I've, I've been to North Korea. Um, so Myanmar um, covered the genocide there, looked at how Facebook was being deployed uh, to, you know, to assist with uh, crimes against humanity, um, places such as Russia, Turkey. I mean, I, I had essentially built a beat around um, looking, trying to get inside some of these regimes and trying to understand how they were using new advances in social media, AI, facial recognition, um, you know, what have you, smartphones, even back when smartphones first came out. Um, and, you know, I had been to Xinjiang in Western China um, a few times over the years. I mean, I, I would go there occasionally. It was always a region, Central Asia fascinated me. Um, and I, I always knew that it was, you know, a, a very um, authoritarian place, but it wasn't until about four years ago, around late 2016 and 2017, um, that I realized, you know, just visiting, visiting there and also talking to friends from the Uyghur ethnic group. I, I had many friends from this group who lived in other parts of Asia and relative freedom. Um, just exactly how intense the level of technological surveillance uh, was getting. You know, I, I went there, I was most recently there in December 2017. Um, there were cameras co covering every 
uh, street corner, every, you know, the, the government bragged that they could see almost every square meter of, of the place. Um, you know, there were police pillboxes on every corner. Um, there was an AI system that was being rolled out called the IJOP, which stands for the Integrated Joint Operations uh, Platform. Um, and uh, this was a system that was being used to monitor and surveil the population via the, the cameras and the smartphones and, and, you know, just about everything. It would scoop up data on everyone, you know, on everything that they do every second of their lives. Do they go in through the front door or the back door? Do they um, buy certain things at the grocery store? Uh, you know, did, were they late for work? Did they get the flu the other day? And, and it would scoop up these data, this data, and in a minority report style, like that movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise, um, the AI would try to predict who would commit a crime or a supposed act of terrorism um, in the future. Uh, this was what China was experimenting with. And so I was alarmed by these developments. I mean, I had seen a lot of, you know, pretty crazy things around the world, um, but uh, I had never seen anything on this scale in Xinjiang. I mean, I felt like I had stepped into a sci-fi movie and had gone, you know, 30, 40 years in the future. It's the year 2050. And, uh, you know, it, it's like we're living in this, this dystopia, this 1984 minority report, kind of a, a Philip K. Dick novel, one of those old sci-fi thrillers from the 60s that always talked about this evil future that was coming. Um, so I set out to write this book because it's something that I, I felt that the world um, would need to know about at some point. Um, and it, for me, like to answer your question, it wasn't just a book you know, about the Uyghurs. It wasn't supposed to be just about a book about Xinjiang. Um, Xinjiang, China, is the warning, the worst case scenario of what could happen if um, just bad technology, bad systems that don't work very well are put in the hands of people who are just, you know, who have bad intentions, you know, who want to seize power for themselves. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote it because I wanted to show, you know, just how bad things could get, you know, if there wasn't a check and a balance against new technologies that were that were being released, if there wasn't a way, say, of, um, you know, reigning in uh, big tech, you know, we had this big conversation in America now about big tech companies like Facebook, Amazon. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, America is going to have like this, this Xinjiang dystopia where everyone's constantly monitored by, a, a, you know, this ominous AI system. Um, but uh, I wanted to show you know, just how um, nefarious things could get if this was, you know, let to go out of control in many authoritarian places in the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. And let's, I mean, let's stay there for just a moment before we go back to the story of the Uyghurs. Um, you know, I, I've got a background in law enforcement and in the military, and I've seen, in fact, I, as part of my Army Reserve capacity, in addition to teaching ROTC cadets, I help Army Futures Command with emerging technology. And I've seen this technology employed, uh, how it is designed to be employed. And even with people with good intentions, it can sometimes lead to um, unintended consequences. So what you said earlier, people with bad intentions with this technology in their hands, it's certainly uh, quite a destructive force um, so as we, as we think about this worst case scenario that we see in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, how do we in the West think about uh, this, this idea of a slippery slope with technology and law enforcement technology? You know, the United States employs this technology, um, albeit to a much lesser extent, 
because we have much more social trust here, but how do we prevent, um, what kind of safeguards do we put into place to make sure that uh, this kind of thing doesn't happen uh, even inadvertently in places in, in democracies? Uh, yeah, so actually that's the big question. And um, I, I think that um, as a nation um, and also just humanity in general, I don't think anyone has fully um, you know, figured out exactly what to do about some of these new technologies. So you know, artificial intelligence, uh, th this is a good example of a tech that has huge potential. It's made advances, um, broad advances in the past uh, you know, eight, nine years or so, uh, I think that we've sort of seen this, we've seen this AI wave that's come and there's been talk of, um, you know, automation and, uh, you know, self-driving cars. It's not here yet, but there are lots of very optimistic promises. But, um, you know, the problem is, you know, once you go from a system of, uh, so there, there's there's two types of AI. There's this, the specialized AI that will do a particular um, task that, you know, can only, you know, clean your room that can, you know, that can, um, that can go around your rug and, and clean it or drive, drive your car. And then there's general yeah. AI, which is the sort of the, um, you could say the Terminator version, the, the type that can just, you know, kind of understand new tasks and take on new tasks and is not restricted to a single um, task at hand. So we're not there yet. I mean, this is still, this general AI is still far off, but the big question is, well, once we get there, um, you know, you know, if, you know, if it's going to be able to recreate its own intelligence in a way that is um, exponential, I mean, what can we do to govern something like general AI that would by definition be ungovernable, ungovernable in so, in so many ways, because there are, you know, there, there are just so many, um, you know, if, if it takes off with its own intelligence, then I mean, what can humanity do to, to keep it, you know, reined in and to keep it, um, you know, under our control? Um, so, you know, that, that's one of the more um, far off kind of alarmist uh, predictions that's happened. A lot of people have talked about the singularity. Uh, I personally, I am more interested in some of the, the nearer term technologies that have been um, released. Um, you know, I think that when it comes to, uh, you know, the police use of facial recognition, um, when it comes to voice recognition and some of these, you know, recent technologies that have made advances in the past five years, um, I think one of the biggest challenges that we face um, is particularly, I mean, in democracies is that we often, you know, our government and also we as the citizens don't always totally know um, how data is being gathered and whether it's actually good data. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Um, whether it's useful data um, and, you know, how it's training the algorithm to, you know, find connections between different disparate um, topics. Uh, you know, is it, um, you know, is the algorithm, you know, is it useful? Does it help law enforcement uh, fight crime? And, you know, I think that um, one of the biggest challenges we now face is that, you know, there's just not much transparency around this technology because it's owned, you know, just by definition, it's owned by private companies. And, you know, this is the secret sauce. They don't want to reveal 
um, you know, how it's coded and, and how the algorithms work. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, right now, you know, we've seen this in the past year or so, starting with the George Floyd protests, there has been some pushback against the use of certain technologies that people claim, um, you know, are, are discriminatory that, you know, they find they, they find suspicious things with minorities more than with, um, you know, white males, for example. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, it's just we don't, as a society, we don't have much actual data, we can't open the hood and see what exactly is going on here because it's so secretive. So um, I think ultimately it is a transparency problem first and foremost. Um, that is the problem here in America as much as it is over in China. I think the difference though is that in China, um, there is no such thing as transparency. There's no such thing as a functioning civil society that can you know, petition the government that can hold a protest. It's simply a one-party state where, you know, people cannot vote and they can't, uh, you know, say that, you know, they, they want their, they can't write to their congressmen and ask for them to look into some of these issues. So, um, you know, this, what's happening in China as opposed to America is that, that China is just the extreme version of what happens um, when this technology is put into motion and the government doesn't fully understand how it works. Um, that's what I believe from my own interviews. Um, and then, you know, in not understanding how it works, kind of pushes the button, pushes the on button and, and sets it off. And then you end up with this catastrophe like Xinjiang, where um, one in every 10 of the population, about 1.5 to 1.8 million people total, are being taken and held in concentration camps without actually being accused of a crime or put on trial. They're simply brought there, um, largely because an AI system predicts that they will commit a crime in the future. And so they need to be indoctrinated and reformed they, they need to have their brains erased and, and, and their, their brains need to be filled with uh, communist part of party propaganda and then that is how you know that this this society of Xinjiang will supposedly solve the problem of crime and terrorism which of course is just horrendous I mean it's just it's a catastrophe and a travesty on so many scales um, but that's what has happened in this region it's it's just the the runaway use of technology to try to solve um, all of our problems. Yeah, and not only is it a travesty, it's also self-defeating, right? I mean, I wonder when the data starts to come out, it's going to be very difficult to get your hands on any of this data, but we'll probably see more crimes committed by people that were incarcerated because of uh, just the disastrous effects that that had on their employment prospects or their uh, the social trust in their communities. Those things break down then they're creating a self-fulfilling prop prophecy almost. Um, and there's a good question that's come in the chat that uh, I wanna get to at this point because um, it's a question that was also on my mind to ask you at some point tonight as to when did you um, start to realize, I'll read the exact wording of the question from Kevin Ennis here in just a second, but when did you start to realize that things in Xinjiang were acute or problems were acute? So he asks, um, how much of the increased Xinjiang surveillance was correlated to the terrorist attacks in China uh, around the 2014 timeframe? I'm assuming he's refer referencing the, uh, you know, the knife uh, attack at the train station and some of the bombings. So um, I know that those happened over a span of, of you know, a couple of years, but that timeframe does seem right to me. And, and is that does that also coincide with the time when you were starting to talk to Uyghur refugees in, in Turkey? I know you've spent quite a bit of time in Turkey, so um, 
what are you thinking about the time frame of all this? Um, so actually, the, the first time I, be, I began speaking to Uyghur refugees was back in 2009 um, in Cambodia, when a number of them had arrived in the country uh, and were under threat of being uh, deported. And they were deported back to China in the end uh, because of their, their alleged accused involvement um, in these protests and riots that had happened that year in Urumqi, which is the regional capital of, the re of this region of China. Um, so 2009, I think, was really the turning point historically. Um, 2009 was when, uh, you know, the people came out in mass. Uh, you know, Beijing had just finished the Olympics the year before, and there was lots of talk about China having its coming out party. That uh, you know, China was going to emerge on this this in the this grand geopolitical order, and it was going to become more democratic or liberal. I mean, there were there was lots of talk, lots of op optimism back in those years with the financial crisis of 2008, you know, that China is going to um, replace the economic system with its own and it's, it's going to open up and it's going to be a future power. Um, none, of this, none of this actually happened as, as people predicted it. I mean, I think that um, certain people had their own reasons for trying to predict that. I think it was in their interest. I think that there was a lot of profit to be made by, by sending out these messages. Um, but 2009 with these protests, uh, that was really the turning point when um, thing when when just the situation there started going uh, downhill. Um, so this was th this was when the Chinese Communist Party they they shut down the internet in this region um, and in the process they wiped out they just deleted all these these cultural artifacts, this poetry and literature that the Uyghurs had been posting online for the previous decade. There was a kind of renaissance in that decade um, when people thought that maybe you know there, there was optimism that the Uyghurs could, Break away and, and create their own country, or could have some kind of you know uprising. Um, but the the Chinese Communist Party decided that this you know enough was enough. We're not going to have any more of this. Um, and that's when the crackdown started. A lot of uh, young men, hundreds of young men, reportedly were disappeared by the police. They were brought out to the outskirts of the city and you know beat with rifle butts and put in detention centers. Um, and as a result, you know of the so the, the repression in these years was really starting. Um, to pick up. And um, many Uyghur men, um, you know, I, I mean, not, not a whole lot, but uh, many like in the, in, the, in the hundreds or kind of low thousands uh, began escaping China and uh, going to um, Turkey where they would fight with, you know, with various Syrian terrorist groups. So the, the East uh, Turkestan, the, the ETIM and the TIP, there are all these different groups out there that are Uyghur, mainly composed of Uyghurs. Um, and as a result of this, so, you know, some of these guys came back, they had training and, and they launched um, some of these terrorist attacks on, on Chinese soil in the years 2013 to 14. Um, and then as a result of that, the Chinese state, you know, responded with an even more brutal hard-handed force. And that's when the ball started rolling, when the wheel started moving towards the, the situation that we have today. Um, so, you know, I mean, to be fair, like China, like was correct that it did face a terrorist threat. Um, that there was, you know, a, there was a jihad threat on its soil and that it did need to protect its borders and protect its citizens um, from these people returning from Afghanistan and Syria. But then, you know, the, the problem is that China in, in trying to battle this demon, uh, you know, just, just made it worse, just simply responded with heavy-handed repression that was so heavy um, that, um, you know, that, that just there were more terrorist attacks. And then over time, it, it's just China responded and, and made this into 
a vast um, surveillance state system. Um, so according to the authorities, and there's no way of verifying this, there, there has not been a terrorist attack for many years. This is one of the points that they hold proud in Xinjiang. Um, hard to tell if that's true. Um, you know, I've heard anecdotally of various attacks happening, you know, rumors of attacks in certain places. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I think that China um, responded, you know, instead of responding with a scalpel and trying to find ways to solve this problem, you know, either, you know, militarily through, um, you know, focused operations or, you know, economically through development and the, the redistribution of uh, wealth among the Uyghur population that was vastly impoverished, um, they chose the sledgehammer approach and decided just to, um, you know, smash the region as hard as they could and in the process created this nightmare dystopia that exists today. Wow. Uh, a nightmare dystopia, that's well said. Um, before we jump into another question from the audience, I do have something that as I was reading it, and this is not a spoiler, uh, obviously, just a question about those that you were interviewing. Uh, Mason, the, the character who you interview the most frequently, um, did you, so so it's it's brilliant how you weave, weave her interviews sporadically in with the interviews of, of several other Uyghur refugees uh, throughout the, the, the story. Was that something that evolved over time or did you kind of develop, and, and I'm assuming this is, this is not her real name, right? That you've probably changed her name, but did that evolve or did, did she, was it pretty clear early on that her story was incredibly compelling, uh, but it's, it's also just one of many stories. She just happened to, to be able to articulate it uh, so effectively. So actually, I didn't plan on using Mason's story and, and publishing it um, at the beginning because I, I actually did not meet her until I was already deep into this project. I was deep into the research, but I had not written um, the book itself yet. Um, and you know, I had interviewed, I, I mean, just more than 100, about, about 168 people in total. Um, at this point, I was probably you know, around interview 80 or 90. And I was looking for someone who, um, you know, like I, I didn't want this book, you know, for narrative purposes to be just simply a collection of testimonies by different refugees who had been through terrible things. I mean, obviously it's terrible that they experience, you know, what they experience. I, I just didn't want, um, I, I didn't want the book to read like, okay, well, here's refugee number one and here's what happened to this person and here's refugee number two. I was really looking for um, someone whose personal life story, whose you know, life story going back further, I mean, going back to childhood, really encapsulated a lot of the bigger picture, uh, you know, social and political changes that were happening in China and in Xinjiang um, over many decades. Um, you know, I thought it would be important to show not just how the systems work today, but how, you know, how we got here, how we got from point A, say, mainly back in the 1990s when China was opening up when the Cold War had ended, to now to point B where, um, you know, China's closing down and becoming more nationalistic and there are trade wars. Uh, I, I thought that her life followed the contours in a very, um, a very insightful, but also a beautiful way. I think that um, she had seen, she had witnessed um, a lot of what the millennials of China and Uyghur millennials in particular had been through. Um, so Mason, just, just so the audience knows, she was 
uh, an aspiring diplomat. She had come of age in a time when um, China was believed to be, you know, one of the next optimistic powers that things were going to go good, that the Uyghurs were going to be free one day, that they would have more rights under the Chinese system. Um, and, you know, she was very sharp, just, just very intellectual, um, speaks multiple languages. She loved reading. She, would, she, would, she came from a family of uh, literary intellectuals and professors who, you know, they were quite elite within the Communist Party. And so she was tapped, you know, as she got older to become a, a diplomat, which would have been rare for, you know, someone from the Uyghur ethnic, ethnic group. And as a result of her, um, just her worldliness, you know, she had, uh, she had traveled to Turkey and she did some studies in Turkey, which is common among Uyghurs. And, you know, she had returned um, to China, you know, with all these books, she was, she had, you know, she was reading everything from the ancient Persian epics uh, to, you know, more recent literature, even Joseph Nye, the political scientist, she was really interested in his work. Um, because of this, you know, she was caught on, on these AI attached cameras. There was one in her living room that, you know, saw her reading a lot. You know, she was having all these, these wonderful conversations with her parents about living overseas. And um, because of this, the system began turning on her very suddenly and, you know, unexpectedly. Um, and the system decided that she had to go to a concentration camp and have her mind purged of all these thoughts. You know, the system thought that her reading her independence was just, that is not what, um, you know, that the Chinese system would allow. So her dreams of becoming a diplomat were dashed. Um, she was called to a local office. She was taken away in a car, put in a camp. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but she was able to get out of the camp uh, through some, some very clever maneuvers, you know, being able to exploit this massive police state bureaucracy to kind of find ways to get an edge against it. So um, you know, I thought that her life story was just, um, you know, it, it was so well, you know, shaped around the story of China and the story of Western China in particular and how this region came to be what it was. Well, it was, it was a brilliant uh, literary device and uh, really grips the reader as, as you read it and, uh, you know, compels those that are that are reading it too, just that the emotional attachment there was was really um, strong. So I do want to make it a little bit more broad. So Don Llewellyn uh, in the audience has got a good question about this kind of surveillance. So would you compare this the kind of surveillance that uh, we see in uh, in China to other authoritarian regimes, like specifically North Korea, or um, are there other um, regimes that uh, in the world that, that have similar levels of technology? Uh, so the short answer is no. Um, there is no other regime to my knowledge that, uh, that has pioneered technology in this way or that has access to the same technology. Um, when I went to North Korea, one of my big takeaways was that, you know, you, you step into North Korea and you feel as if um, you have gone back in time about 70 years. You're at the, the height of the Cold War and um, Stalin or Gorbachev are, are making their threats against the world. We will bury you, um, you know, that, that you, you see all the, the goose-stepping soldiers and, and there are lots of, um, you know, old factories and tanks that look like they're from the year 1955. They look like Soviet 
tanks out on display, the, the cult of personality, the, you know, you, you lay flowers for the, the great leader Kim Il-sung and you're supposed to bow for him. Like, I mean, North Korea, it is um, probably, it is the most isolated or one of the most isolated states in the world. And because of that, you just, you go there and you're, you're back in time. Like that's, if you, if you have an interest in Cold War history, totally, you know, if you can get there, just visit North Korea as a tourist. Um, Americans can't go anymore, but you know, if there are any other people, for, any other citizens in here, um, you know, I, I think you can go there pretty easily actually. So, um, okay, so Xinjiang, China, um, mostly Xinjiang, but you know, I think speaking broadly now about China, um, I, I think that you go there and the feeling is the opposite. It's, it's authoritarian, um, traditionally not as authoritarian as North Korea, but you go to Xinjiang um, and you feel like you've stepped into the future. You know, you feel like you've entered this North Korean-esque, kind of this North Korean style authoritarian system where there's a communist party and there are, you know, the, the bureaucratic bodies, there's the party, um, the party committees and the, uh, um, you know, the, um, you know, every five years they choose a new leader and all that. It, it, it is very kind of CCP Soviet, but you feel like, you know, just with the, the extreme technology and just the extreme, you know, kind of like the extreme policing that exists there through technology, uh, you just feel like you're in this sci-fi novel. And that's, that's the, that's the feeling that I've tried to convey in writing this book. Um, you know, if I had written a book about North Korea, um, I think it would have had a different takeaway or kind of a different atmosphere to it. I think, you know, and there have been very good books written about um, North Korea, but you, I, I think that most readers come away from it thinking like, wow, you know, this is like, this is 1960 Asia and, you know, we still, there's still this personality cult, but then China is just, um, it's just like totally 1984. Um, hmm. So, I mean, yeah, so to answer the question, um, you know, I, I just, like I, I could not find any evidence. I've, I've gone around, uh, I wasn't able to travel much in the last year just because of COVID, but I've gone, I've gone around doing research, desk research, just trying to see if there's a good example that compares to Xinjiang right now. Um, and I have not been able to find any example that of technology and concentration camps being deployed um, on this extreme level today. Um, mm. This is, according to many estimates, the largest internment of ethnic minorities since the Holocaust, uh, which is scary. I mean, this is 1.8 million people housed in hundreds of concentration camps that are repurposed from, um, you know, schools, from gymnasiums, from various government buildings and prisons, uh, where people are just taken extrajudicially, just taken in the night, um, you know, just called to a police station and just for no reason whatsoever that they can ascertain are told, you know, you need to go to a camp. And, you know, the, the reason, the reason, the actual reasons can be silly. It can be something like you have a beard, you grew a beard. So that means you're a terrorist or, you know, you, um, uh, one of the funniest or not funny, but one of the strangest ones I heard was like you, um, you bought the, a refugee was told you bought the materials to make a tent. We caught you buying the materials to make a tent. Mm. And therefore we think that you have terrorist leanings and he was taken to a concentration camp where he was tortured. Um, uh, to, so one last thing though. Uh, so the Chinese Communist Party and its uh, associated companies, uh, various Chinese companies have been trying to export these technologies around the world um, and these technologies are especially popular, according to a few studies, 
with regimes that are uh, middle income or lower income that you know tend to be not rich but not poor, and that also have kind of a quasi authoritarian bent. I mean, they're not all authoritarian, but um, you know, countries in Central Asia, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, um, parts of South America, they they want these Chinese technologies because they um, they these governments see them as tools for fighting crime often. Um, sometimes they see it as you know a tool for actually repressing the people. But they're eager to buy, you know, technology from Huawei to create what they call a safe city or a smart city. Um, but you know, th this is starting to become a huge risk because you know nobody knows for sure what a company like Huawei is doing with all the data it's scooping up. You know, in, in another country, are they sending that back to the Chinese Communist Party? Um, you know, Huawei would deny that publicly, but nobody knows for sure because Chinese law, you know, makes it a requirement that if the government asks you to send that data, then you pretty much have to, you don't have much recourse. Yeah, so true. Uh, so sticking with the global perspective, Steve asks, um, he says, I think it's naive to assume that even Western countries won't use surveillance technologies that become available. I just look at the NSA program to collect mass communications data. But what kind of speed bumps or barriers or checks do you think we need to put in deployment uh, to prevent technologies from like, like this from leading to a situation like 1984, even in the US? Yes, well, in the US, actually, I mean, we are already using some of the same technologies that have been deployed in Xinjiang. Um, so, uh, you know, some American companies have been caught uh, selling their technologies to directly to the authorities in Xinjiang where they were used for some of these major surveillance systems. Uh, one of them, one of the worst offenders previous offenders was Thermo Fisher, which is a major uh, scientific firm. They make scientific equipment, healthcare equipment. And um, they had been selling biometric, uh, get, so bio, biometric de devices that gather uh, DNA data on people. Um, they were selling that in Xinjiang uh, to the authorities. So they since came under scrutiny from Congress and the government, and they, they say that they've stopped doing that now, but um, you know, they were doing it for a while. Um, so you know there there isn't much all there isn't much of a line always between what's happening in Silicon Valley or what's happening in New York versus what's happening in Beijing. We do live in a very globalized world with very uh, just vast, complicated supply chains. It, it's it's hard a lot of the time to figure out who's making what component, who's making which semiconductor, and where it's being sold and how it's being used. Um, so you know that's a huge risk in itself for American democracy. I mean I think that. Uh, what you know, both the Biden and Trump administrations have done to try to separate some of these technological spheres to separate the U.S. from China. Um, I think it was a very good idea because you know, at least even if we even if we can't know everything about who's supplying what to whom, at least you know we can have some degree of control over you know what what is reaching American shores and what American companies are doing overseas in places like China. Um, so when it comes to checks and balances, yes. So I talk about NSA in the book. Um, I talk about Ed Snowden, and there was a big uh, China connection to those Snowden leaks too. There, there, you know, the NSA was hacking Huawei, major Chinese company, um, you know, spying on its executives, trying to gather data on possible links with the Chinese military. Um, you know, so I, I have two thoughts on these America-China comparisons. So the first thing is that it's simply a reality in the world that states spy on each other. Um, you know, if the NSA is spying on China and China is spying, you know, the Ministry of State Security in China or another agency is spying on the US 
spying on the NSA. Um, it's just a reality that that's just the global order that we live in. They, people gather data and gather intelligence all the time on each other. Um, the other thing is that there is a, one key difference between the Chinese, uh, the cyber hacking and intelligence strategy and the American and kind of the five eyes uh, intelligence strategy against China. And it's that, um, you know, China is looking to lift technologies from the West to, you know, to, to steal military tech, to steal, um, just to steal IP, to steal commercial trade secrets, uh, and to use it to give China the edge technologically. Whereas, you know, the five eyes, they don't really need Chinese technology that much. Um, you know, it's just the, the reality, despite all this talk about, uh, you know, Chinese technology overtaking America, I think the reality is that America is still far ahead of, in a lot of these fields. And so a lot of the intelligence gathering that happens over there by America is more, um, you know, spying on uh, people who might have military links trying to figure out their um, their national security strategy or what they're, you know, what they're doing under the table. Um, it, you know, America is not trying to steal Chinese technology and like use it to enhance its own military. Um, so that is a key difference. Um, so when it comes to the, um, you know, checks and balances, I mean, I think one thing we could do in America, you know, I, I think that the, you know, now the war on terror is uh, long gone. Um, you know, we've left Afghanistan, there, there remains a terrorist threat, but I think that we need to relax uh, many of these war on terror era um, kind of secrecy laws. So for a good example is the FISA court, the, the Foreign Intelligence Court, that um, you know has allowed the NSA in secret to you know take on a lot of these spying projects. I mean, I think that the FISA court um, should either be dismantled, and uh, many you know I think that intelligence agencies should have to um, go through many of the normal courts that a lot of people have to you know a lot of other agencies have to go through too. Um, I don't think the intelligence community should ne necessarily be given an exalted status um, in a democracy. I mean, I think that you know they. There are always going to be secrets. There, there's always going to be a need to keep secrecy. But in a democracy, um, you know, it's it's also important to keep your people informed. So, um, you know, I think that's really the key now. Um, I think we'll probably see a little more of that now that Afghanistan's winding down. There, there might be more of a push for transparency over the next decade. But we'll see. Yeah. Well, this this is just kind of a curious, curious question from my perspective about. Uh, those that are in these re-education camps, you know, we've 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 seen in history um, the pictures and even sometimes when they're when it's available footage of what it's like in concentration camps. What is the you know the perceived or actual anecdotal evidence about the the conditions in these camps? Uh, what are what are the uh, Uyghur people facing? Are they uh, is, is mass starvation, is torture commonplace or rare? Um, speak to that for a moment. Yeah, so the concentration camps, um, I think that they're, so they're very, they're terrifying. Um, and the reason they're terrifying is, you know, not because they are a Nazi Germany style uh, Holocaust happening. You know, this is not gas chambers and mass graves, but what is terrifying is the extent of uh, psychological torture that goes on there, um, using the threat of this constant monitoring and surveillance that's going on. So people feel like they, they describe it as a panopticon, which is something I cover a lot in the book. It's this 
um, invention by a British philosopher many centuries ago uh, that would keep prisoners under control by putting them in this circular format and in the, the center of this circular prison so that the cells are on the outside of this circle. And then in the center of the circle is a, a sentry post where um, you know, so somebody, you know, a guard might be watching them. Um, but the thing is that the prisoners can't see the guards, whereas the guards can see all the prisoners. Um, so, so what that means is that you know the guards might be they might be watching someone. They might have binoculars. Maybe they're looking at one person in particular. You know, maybe they're listening in on their conversations with a special recording device. Um, you know, maybe they're sleeping. Maybe they're kicking back and playing computer games. Maybe they don't care. Like no one knows for sure. But it's it's a genius tool for keeping these prisoners under control just because they're so unsure about whether or not they're being watched at any given moment in time. Um, so everyone falls in line, you know, people are terrified. And that's the, the model that China, the Chinese Communist Party has unveiled in these camps and in Xinjiang at large. There's a sense that, you know, everyone is constantly being watched. There are cameras everywhere. There are sound sensors on the floor. Um, you know, there, there's this AI system, the, the Skynet, it's often called, or IJOP, there are different names. Um, Skynet, by the way, is the system in Terminator. I just, I find it so strange and terrifying that China chose that name for its own you know, surveillance system. Um, but uh, this, this is sort of the mood in the camps, and this is what allows for the psychological torture and the indoctrination to happen. Because if everyone is uncertain about what's going to happen the next day, you know, are they going to be taken to a worse camp? You know, are they going to be beaten and tortured because they said something wrong and the camera heard them? Um, you know, were they not paying attention in their indoctrination class that day? Um, like everyone falls into line and they erase their, they sort of erase their outer selves in the process. So you go to the camps and people say that, um, you know, everyone has like sort of lost their personality, lost their identity. They, they, they look like um, you know, people who woke up from this car crash and they have terrible amnesia, they can't remember anything, they don't have a personality anymore, they don't, like, people don't smile there, they don't frown, they don't cry, they don't laugh. It's just simply that you are among minions who've just had their identities white. Um, so, you know, whoever, you know, I, I still, it's, it's hard to tell who exactly designed the system in the first place because there's still a lot that we don't know. But I, I just believe that whoever, you know, sat down and thought of these tactics, this panopticon, um, you know, he must have been just deeply enmeshed in the world of psychology and understanding, you know, how humans work, like how the mind works and how personalities are formed and how you can erase a personality, how you can, you know, get someone to erase their sense of history and heritage, culture, their, um, you know, the reality around them, how you can like kind of gaslight them like a an abuser, you know, into, into doubting the own abuse that they've had. Um, you know, that's what's terrifying is that it's like, the, it's like an abuser who doesn't leave many marks on their victim, but has learned to, you know, abuse in that way on a mass, you know, nationwide scale, region-wide scale. Terrifying. So what do you, what do you make of technologies? Uh, one that I'm pretty familiar with, blockchain technology that tries to decentralize uh, power structures and, and remove a centralized authority. Recently, um, the Chinese government banned uh, cryptocurrency mining, and it, and I've kind of formulated some theories as to why. One of them is because 
of capital controls. They're they're fearful of uh, people, you know, using cryptocurrency to avoid capital controls that China places on their citizens. And the other is that they're fearful of uncensorable money, or they're fearful of uncensorable data transfer. So, are there any technologies that that you see that can operate in an environment where it's fully uh, inundated with surveillance technology. Uh, so is there, are there any efforts to, to get this kind of technology to the Uyghurs? Uh, perhaps you wouldn't be able to talk about them if there were, I, I don't know, but uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so actually um, I was, it's, that's a really good question because I've been looking into this also. I've, I've been curious if there is a sustained campaign or some kind of operation somewhere to, um, you know, get cybersecurity tools to Uyghurs currently in China or to get, you know, Bitcoin to them to, you know, it, it would be sort of secret cash that they could use to escape. They need to pay the right, pay off the right officers, pay the right, you know, kind of the underground railroad, the people who would take them out. Um, you know, I, I haven't heard anything certain. Um, I, I mean, some refugees have told me rumors that there are certain, you know, certain things like this going on, certain campaigns that we, that nobody really knows about. Um, but I haven't come across any firm evidence, you know, that, that this is actually happening. There actually used to be, before these crackdowns of 2016-17, there used to be um, a, a much more vibrant kind of road or kind of network of people who were leaving Xinjiang uh, and who were going down to Southeast Asia. A lot of them went to Thailand, Cambodia, uh, you know, Thailand, not, not a bad place to, to go if you want to escape, you know, Xinjiang, China, uh, don't, don't blame them. Um, and also, you know, other parts of Central Asia were popular places to, you know, to kind of escape. But, you know, the, the security state there has become so intense that, um, you know, whatever, like, like whatever has become of, of refugees leaving through these routes has just become a trickle. I mean, it's just simply, I, I've looked at the numbers and I just, I don't see any, I, I don't think I've seen a single Uyghur refugee, um, you know, in any report anywhere, like arriving in Thailand anymore or arriving in Vietnam. Um, I haven't seen, you know, like recently, I mean, not many people arriving in Turkey, which is another big destination. Um, the last Uyghurs to make it to America got here in late 2017. And since then, I don't, I, to my knowledge, there has not been a single Uyghur who has managed to uh, get to the States or to Canada or kind of a North, a North American um, democracy. Um, so, you know, just based on that data, I think it's safe to conjecture that, um, you know, whatever efforts are happening to put Bitcoin in the hands of Uyghurs, it's probably not working well. Uh, I think that the Chinese authorities have a really good sense honed in on who's doing what, they're spying on people. Um, and, the, and the Chinese government is not just spying on its own people in, in Xinjiang, um, but as I've documented in the book, they, they have created a vast network of uh, Uyghur turncoats who have become spies under duress to ensure that their families are um, you know, taken care of back in China while they're overseas. So I, I, I've documented people in Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Turkey, Syria, um, you know, other parts, Central Asia in particular, the Stan countries are, are a big place where this happens. Um, and I've also heard stories about some Uyghurs in America, you know, engaging in espionage, uh, you know, on behalf of, of China um, against fellow Uyghurs who are overseas in places like Washington, D.C. So, 
you know, that just that network by itself would make it very difficult for, you know, anyone to set up, you know, like kind of a secret Uyghur network where they're helping people out back in the region. Wow. It's tragic and uh, a little depressing, but it's, you know, the first stage as we, as we, you know, digest this information is to, to become informed and uh, by doing things like reading your book. And, and there's another question in the chat from Mary about other books that you would recommend that we as an audience uh, read to, to educate ourselves and to become informed about what's going on. So perhaps you have some recommendations. Sure. So um, when it comes to China, there is another book. I, actually, one of the speakers at the council was Amelia Pong, who wrote um, uh, Made in China, which is about the slave labor uh, conditions that, that, that China really you know, built its economic uh, success on. Another one that I would recommend about authoritarianism is uh, a book called Nothing to Envy by Barbara Demick. She wrote a, um, a beautiful portrait of people in North Korea who had escaped and become refugees. It won all kinds of awards, one of my favorite books. And also um, one of my other favorites is the Cambodian uh, genocide. So there's a book um, called When the War Was Over by a, an author named Elizabeth Becker, who was a Washington Post correspondent. And in the 1970s, she had become, I, I think it was the only or one of the, maybe one of four or five people who, who uh, was invited into Cambodia at the height of that genocide um, and met Pol Pot, met the mass murderers, kind of documented their stories. Uh, and one of the people in her group was actually assassinated, was simply shot by these Cambodian, um, you know, genocidal maniacs. She, she got out okay, but that is an excellent book, When the War Was Over. I, I think that these books, kind of looking at different countries and looking at um, what they've been through with respect to authoritarianism, um, it does, you know, it, like it does shine a lot of light on what's happening globally, um, you know, also in Xinjiang, because there is a common story to all these places. You know, there, there, there are lots of similarities and underlying, underlying patterns that you can kind of pick out and, and learn more um, about this. That's great. Uh, I'm sure the audience will be going to pick those up. So uh, I'm going to turn it back over to Liz at this point. Jeffrey, wonderful conversation, very enlightening. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to spend with us at the World Affairs Council for this, this evening. And without further ado, uh, back to Liz. Thank you, Lee. Hey, thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. I just have to second uh, Lee that that was a fascinating, enlightening conversation. And Lee, to your point, yeah, we need to all be more informed. So this, this conversation helps Jeffrey Kane's book, The Perfect Police State, uh, The Police, uh, The Perfect Police State helps uh, buy it at our, our bookstore partner in Terrabang Books, and you can get the 10% discount using DFW World. Uh, it, it, that really was a great conversation. So thank you so much. Uh, have a good evening, and thanks again.